It is a balmy summer's evening, and I am sitting on a rooftop in my North Melbourne home, reflecting on all of the reasons why I ditched the vast expanse of out-of-town acreage, the dirt roads, the corner stores and fish and chipperies, and the dull echo of cows, of alpacas, of things with hooves that stamp. Surrounded by truck drivers, asparagus farmers, and horse and greyhound racing enthusiasts, I wanted something more considered more progressive. I wanted to find myself allotted into a world that was open-minded and cutting-edge, a place humming with life and energy, a place where I could feel accepted wholly as I was. A young, passionate, LGBTQI plus woman with a penchant for learning and change. The city felt like an agreeable option, where the closest thing to homegrown I could find was a makeshift arts and craft market with available FPOS options situated somewhere deep in Fitzroy, where there were dimly lit bars and overpriced beers, and instead of the sound of horseshoes on barn floors, I could hear drunken laughter and the clipping of high heels on asphalt instead. But the harm in distancing oneself from one's roots, so to speak, is that we often forget where our daily necessities come from, where the broccoli on our plate is sourced from, or who axed the stalks off of our carrots. And that's likely because agriculture is a path that isn't thought about much by our city folk. For at least a solid 60 kilometres back down off of the South Gibby Highway or somewhere similar. Our relationship to the fuel we need to survive is framed by distance and ignorance. But what if it were possible to marry the two? To marry urbanism and agriculture? To merge my rooftop, for example, or any rooftop for that matter, and the idiosyncrasies of a buzzing metropolis? What if food could be grown and fostered at our fingertips? And how would that change our relationship to it? This is All Things Green, a conversation series brought to you by the Plant Society that shines a light on the people, places and politics behind the plants. I'm Madison Griffiths and every fortnight we will explore our cultural relationship to the plants we know, love and care for. Urban agriculture is somewhat of a new craze that is budding across city spaces internationally. With the global population set to exceed 10 billion people by 2050, the challenge of providing enough food for everyone in a sustainable, efficient and cost-effective way is rising in significance. From rooftops in the heart of New York, where mushrooms germinate, from beer and coffee waste, to aquaponic and vertical farms in Japan and the Netherlands, to a city farm in Sydney's city centre dedicated to bush foods, urban citizens are craving a close and first-hand relationship with their produce. The benefits of urban farming aren't all just in the experience of being within a closer proximity to the things we choose to eat and drink. There is something much more spiritually and symbolically advantageous about citified gardening endeavours. We can establish a deeper connection with the natural world in a cultural climate that demands our attention and intervention. Industrialisation and globalisation saw that relationship simmer completely and we relished the convenience and economic pluses of made-in-China stickers and packaged apple slices. 
The true cost of food, though, is a mystery to most of us. And when I say cost, I don't just mean its dollar worth, but the effect certain food and wrapping practices have had on an already suffering environment. The climate is aflame. There is a terrifying decrease in healthy access to water, animals and plants are becoming progressively extinct. Soil is eroding and disease is ever present. That's where Yerabingen comes in. Yerabingen is a rooftop farm in Sydney's city centre that has taken the Australian agritecture scene, so to speak, by storm. You're listening to the sweet, serenading voices of Indigenous rooftop farm Yerabingen's founders, Clarence Slocky and Christian Hampson. We chatted to one of Yerabingen's founders, Christian, about human-centred empathetic design, the importance of speaking to First Nations people when it comes to our understanding of plants and sustainability, and how to make initiatives such as Yerabingen accessible to the wider public. Um, so it's probably so Clarence and I have known each other for over 20 years. Um, his background, obviously, working as a cultural educator, particularly around botanicals, and then my background working in national parks in New South Wales. Uh, 2015, we decided we'd come to old blokes and go back and do our business degrees because we had a few different ideas and thought that was it. So we went back to uni and did full-time study while we were doing full-time work. And then through that process of doing that degree, we sort of started to come up with a number of business models and, and also essentially a design approach, which is sort of what we've used for the, for the garden, which is all about the idea of, you know, human-centred, empathetic design. Um, and bring an Indigenous approach as far as environmental consciousness, um, cultural consciousness into that design process. So that was sort of where we landed with the company Yerubingan. Um, as you're probably aware, Yerubingan, um, it comes from one of my grandparents' language, and that means uh, we walk together. So essentially collaboration. I really like your point about human-centred empathetic design because I was actually wanting to, you know, it's a little bit difficult to have a conversation about this stuff and and sort of the environment without um, paying attention to the current climate crisis that is occurring. Um, But one thing that's been really, um, I think, quite positive and, you know, well, you know, bittersweet really, but there has been quite a bit of discourse about the importance of listening to First Nations people about um, their relationship to the environment and, and land management. Oh, yeah, look, I think so. <clears throat> I think you're, you're very right. I think that's essentially what Clarence and I find, found um, quite a big call for discussion around how do we bring, you know, Indigenous tacit knowledge slash wisdom into the discussion about how do we look after the planet and, in particular, how do we design our places so that, A, there is a, 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 an Indigenous narrative within it so that future generations can become those custodians and I think that's the key for able to, to use this approach and sometimes it can be very subtle around the use of native plants and sometimes it can be you know <clears throat> quite overt where it's where it's essentially you know strong acknowledgement so I think and it's not just indigenous knowledge here but indigenous knowledge around the world and I think that's the great thing is just that the UN itself and its several of its charters discusses the importance 
to learn from Indigenous knowledge in relation to environmental management. I think Australia's a bit slow on the uptake, but it's getting better. <laughs> As you said, the discourse is great. The and I, and I think for us, that's what we love: the idea of of our farm and the other native landscapes that we design, having this you know community empowerment, connection, education. You know, a way for different people to engage, where it's not like there's one one story for them to learn on. It's actually people can connect to things such as plants and the environment, biodiversity, from a cultural perspective, from their own personal um, connection. And I think that's where people actually take more from it, rather than sort of a standard sort of narrative. Absolutely, no, that's that's really true. When you have an actual personal relationship with something, um, you know, especially something of the natural world, there could be a real yeah, a real sort of visceral emotional response to it, which is is um, quite a skill to sort of factor that into a design and business model. But I want to now. I want to know, I guess, a little bit about the sort of bush food that you, you're cultivating on the roof. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but do you have a favourite? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do, and it's an interesting, interesting one because um, if you look at it, it's not the prettiest plant in the world. It looks a bit like a blackberry, but the native raspberry. Um, because it comes, because I'm a, I'm, I come from mountains, so I'm a bit more temperate. So obviously Clarence is Bunjalung, so he's on Manaroo War up in his Bunjalung, so he comes from the coast and I come from the mountains. So I'm sure he loves some of the amazing coastal plants. But for me, it's got a strong memory of being a kid and being shown about it. And um, Plus it's an amazing plant, they're beautiful. And then I think the other great thing is people go, what, we've got a native raspberry. So I think um, for me that's probably one of the favourite plants on the roof. But from another perspective, the cultural perspective, obviously, given obviously the, the thing you're asking for about awareness for indigenous land management, we're very proud of the fact that we have a couple of species of the very rare, um, it's called Moonhong in Dark Emir, but in my language they call it Munyang or the Daisy Yam. Mm-hmm. So, we're, so we're successfully growing that on the roof, which is, which is pretty amazing. We, we only got two plants originally and we've been cultivating the seed and yeah, so the, the sort of the... For whatever reason, the, the, this is very much an experimental garden slash farm. Um, no one's used a lot of these plants, actually most of them, nor have they used this approach or the engineering behind it. And it seems to be that it has been very successful in growing plants that in other places struggle, um, even in just under normal sort of um, tree conditions. So, yeah, we're pretty, that's probably, from a cultural perspective, that would be also a plant that I've, you know, obviously um, such a strong message around active indigenous land management conservation you know we didn't just wander around and fight feed there was a whole active land management um approach it's sort of the poster child for that so um and yeah and you know and and, and it's not the most uh, amazing looking plant in the garden but it is one that has such such huge value in that current discussion i think and then i think i think it's usually because it seems to be there's a lot of a lot of interest in it i mean even even from the food perspective I mean, that's what we found really interesting is you know there's a lot of interest in food origin and people understanding the impact of their food and i suppose that's another great great outcome is, is that um it's, it's another way for people to feel comfortable about engaging with aboriginal culture is is, is through cultural knowledge of, of, of food plants and i think that's great because kids grandparents they can get involved and then often with means that they, they then start their own journey around learning more about um, Aboriginal culture or just an awareness of um, you know cultural knowledge around biodiversity management and all that sort of stuff that they probably probably weren't aware of and, and, and again as I said I think the great thing for the, for the kids they we really want to inspire you know that custodianship which I think is what is really the 
sort of the you know the, the younger mob now who are black and white who are getting into okay it's time that we draw and draw lines and look after the planet so I think it goes to this um, this, this agriculture stuff too you know I mean the, the sort of the push by you know places such as you know Toronto and I mean we were inspired by a cultural garden that was done um, in Toronto so it's not a food garden as such but it's a rooftop garden that was done by First Nations people that um look to have you know the opportunity for people to learn you know, in an urban landscape mm. you know rather than you know there's, there's always a lot of good stuff about getting people out of the urban landscape into you know, landscapes they can learn but we also think that, that there's, a, there's an interesting juxtaposition I suppose where when you see us amongst a bunch of corporate you know office buildings and here's this, this garden you know here's this, this farm and I think it's great because they look out of their window and see Often sustainable initiatives and food practices are seen as quite inaccessible and they're quite often married to like a hefty price tag. And so for you, what, what is it like politically, I guess, running an urban agricultural enterprise that reflects the true cost of food production? But, you know, how do you factor accessibility into your, your practice? Well, I think that's the interesting thing is, is that the, the, the rooftop farm is not designed to make um, money to sustain itself economically just off the produce. It's probably, it probably covers the cost of it. It's actually the connectivity and the accessibility of it is actually what is. So we run events, we run workshops, we, you know, it's, it's essentially we designed the business model so that it's cost neutral to the development. So the idea for us is sustainability um, in, in, incorporates obviously, you know, social sustainability, environmental sustainability, cultural sustainability, and economic sustainability. And, and, and the way, and the great thing is, is that the model that we've since they're also prototyped with the rooftop is something that we can we can help develop or it can transfer to a First Nations group anywhere in the world we think I mean that's sort of you know the garden is, is I suppose a lot of people focus on the physical garden but in many ways it's the, it's the way that we came about I mean the great thing was we had a developer that had you know a lot of vision and a lot of trust in us I mean we were you know essentially a very new company but we presented to them what we felt was a good sound economic model to support the long-term sustainability of the site. So now this has been great because it's essentially been our, our prototype testing space. We continue to add different species. We're up to over 40 species now. And um, the idea is, is that we can scale this to a ter- terrestrial space. So we're looking at the opportunity of, of taking this approach to like riparian repair with a developer where they've got like 15 hectares where this creek's clapped out that we could actually help regenerate that but then also create an economic forageable landscape that will sustain, you know, employment. And I mean, that's one of the key things we are. We're employing, you know, local Aboriginal people from Redfern and, um, you know, in the, in the space. And then we also run the whole 12 hectare site. So this, uh, what they call South Everly, um, has five and a half hectares of green space, so we're the landscape manager, so we use the exact same approach. So we're using native design, we're using permanent, native permaculture, all organics, so even the oval and everything like that, we don't use any pesticides or anything on the whole site, and it's employing um, Aboriginal horticulturists and labouring gardening staff and everything to do that. So there's this idea that we, the garden is part of a, a sustainable model, essentially.
Thank you for listening to the third episode of All Things Green, a conversation series brought to you by the Plant Society that shines a light on the people, places and politics behind the plants. I'm Madison Griffiths and every fortnight we will be exploring our cultural relationship to the plants we know, love and care for. I'd like to thank the rest of my wonderful team in-house, interstate and in print. We're a pretty easygoing bunch, so make sure to drop in and say hello. And if you have any suggestions or topics or queries that you'd like us to tackle in All Things Green, drop us a line on our socials. And thanks also to Christian from Yerabingan for his tireless activism and what Yerabingan offers culturally, politically and sustainably. Until next time.